Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax audit and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. If there has been one central underlying theme for the Carolinas this last generation or so, it is the premise of exceptional growth and development, which has led us to become and described as the New South. However, with this deep and wide growth comes change. So it presents the question, if we've been changing for so long, who are we now? What do we look like? And what do systemic measures like the census implicate about who we're becoming? I'm Chris William and welcome again to the most widely watched source of Carolina business policy and public affairs. And in just a moment, a panel of experts will come together to talk about things like in migration, immigration, the census, demographics, and more. Please stay with us. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, health care, rural churches, and children's services. Bearings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at Bearings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Patrick Woody of the NC Rural Center, Carl Blackstone from the Columbia Chamber of Commerce, Dr. Rebecca Tippett from Carolina Demography of UNC Chapel Hill, and Julie Smithwick of the Community Health Worker Institute, University of South Carolina. Hello, welcome to our program. Happy weekend. Good to have you all here. Thanks, this is great. All the fun stuff uh, is talked about right before the cameras come on, and that's and then everybody gets quiet. <laughs> we're going to try to pull that out of you. Let, let, you know, the, the, the main premise of this dialogue was to figure out, we call ourselves the New South, but how much, and these are rhetorical questions for now, but how much has it changed? Um, what are we now, and where are we going? I'll start with the demographer among us here, Dr. Tippett. Um, what is this central question about who is the New South now? What is the New South now? So I think um, one of the things that we're seeing in the South more broadly, especially in the Carolinas, has been rapid population growth for the past um, few decades, which means that not only are we seeing impacts in our rural and urban regions in the state, but the South is also gaining political power at a national stage as it's getting more congressional representation. Um, and some of those drivers are the fact that people who were born in the Carolinas tend to stay in the Carolinas, so we aren't losing population to moving out, but we're increasingly attracting people in ways that we didn't before. And that's really been new since the 90s. So um, one of my colleagues at UNC, Professor Jim Johnson, likes to joke that, you know, it used to be that there are two languages in North Carolina, English and bad English. <laughs> and now we have, you know, people from all over the globe who are living in North Carolina. and. I think South Carolina hasn't quite 
gotten as much immigration, but increasingly we're a microcosm of the United States, which is really a microcosm of the world. And that's really changed the landscape of our state. Yeah. What's the point of view from the Palmetto State? As you listen to uh, Rebecca talk about that, Julie, how do, how do you come down on that? We are in the top three or four states of the fastest growing Latino population in the entire country of South Carolina. You know, I think North Carolina used to be right at the top. We're still in, uh, we're either three or four in the fastest growing Latino population, and that's been over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just interesting, you know, when I grew up in Florence, South Carolina, again, to, to hear somebody speak Spanish, you'd have to go to the one Mexican restaurant. Yeah, right. And now you hear it on the streets, and it, and it has caused, you know, some challenges, but it's also uh, the a richer diversity in our state, you know, the ability to interact with, with all folks from all over. Yeah, Patrick, uh, Carl, please wait in on yeah. that. How, how do you come down on this? Well, I think from a rural perspective and really thinking about uh, the context of our work in rural North Carolina over three decades, the change has really been remarkable. Um, when we opened our doors in the late 1980s, there were only three states in the country that ha had a higher percentage of native-born population. Uh, to Becky's point about um, um, the, the, stick, the, the stickiness of people really staying mm -hmm. in North Carolina, we, we had a lot of native-born population. Fast forward to today, you know, something like 42% of the people that live in North Carolina were not born in the state of North Carolina. Um, a perception is that holds, that the reason for that is the growth around our cities. But the fact is, even in, if you just look at our rural counties that we serve, 35%, over a third of the population of rural North Carolina was not born in the state of North Carolina. That's huge, that's just a huge change over three decades. Does that map the same way as you see it? Yeah, we're seeing an influx of people from around the world, which is really interesting. Um, and not just in uh, the urban markets, uh, which are typically university or large manufacturing companies that would recruit internationally or from around the country. But it does change the workforce. It changes how you manage people. It changes um, the political landscape in a mm -hmm. great way. So it, it does provide challenges. It's healthy, though. It's very much a healthy infusion of diversity uh, and thought processes, to which for South Carolina, we need that, quite frankly. Well, and, and back to what you said, Rebecca, you brought the idea up as, as the region grows, it also grows in representation in the mm -hmm. halls of Congress, but also in the halls in Raleigh, in the halls in Columbia. And so let's, let's go to this idea of the census. Of course, mm -hmm. Supreme Court of the United States just ruled on, or is ruling or considering a, a certain question that the Trump administration has proposed, and there's some back and forth about that. But let, let's talk about the census. The census is a measure of who we are now. How do you tweeze out or tease out the difference between, and I'm looking at both of you because we were talking prior, how do you tease out the difference, start with you, Julie, the, the idea of the politics of the census and the actual utility of the census? What's more important to remember here and how does it apply to our growth? So the purpose of the census is to count and understand who we have in our country, in our states, in our regions, right? And in the in the local areas down to a small, you know, less than zip, smaller than zip code region. And it's uh, to help us allocate resources, the resources that are needed based on who is living there and the and the realities of their local areas. So really, it it should be separate from 
from politics. We should have a way that is that uh, is we're able to count everybody and it's accessible to everybody, and that folks want to participate in the census. And so, some of the recent debate around the citizenship question has really gotten folks thinking just just that. You know, is this a political tool or is this really about demography and mapping out who we have so we can assign resources? Um, that question kind of made it more political, and it really added an, an additional barrier and challenge for folks because, you know, let's say that you're an immigrant family and you're, you have a mixed status mm -hmm. family. One person is a citizen, another person's a, res a resident. You may have, you know, children who are citizens, a, a child who may be undocumented. If anybody in your family is concerned about any repercussion it may have by answering that question, you're just not gonna answer. So how does that affect us? We're not able to really count people in the right way to be able to allocate those resources effectively. And, and Rebecca, it's a, in my opinion, or my, my, rather my question is, is it a fair question, and how does it not become weaponized politically? So the citizenship question? Yes. So I think it's, there is no argument that we don't want to understand citizenship. We ask about citizenship right. on the American Community Survey, um, but the reason why demographers like myself and other experts have been so concerned is because there's a very long, very bureaucratic and um, boring process of how you add new questions to the census. Because the most expensive part of conducting the census is what's called non-response follow-up. And if you do anything to change the form that's going to almost 330 million Americans, you can increase small percentage increases, inc cause millions of dollars in additional cost. And they decrease the accuracy and quality of the data. And so the reason that we're concerned about the question is not because of asking about citizenship. It's because it was not introduced with the right timeline to mm -hmm. test and understand how it would be, um, how it would impact response rates and what the best way to answer that is. So. It's very hard to make the census non-political because its fundamental purpose is to allocate political power and resources, but it's important to remember that it's also the backbone of virtually every mm -hmm. other federal statistical data product. So if you use Zillow, if you use any sort of you know, labor market data, it's going to be built on the backbone of the mm -hmm. census. Um, and getting it right is just right. vitally important for us to understand and plan for the next decade. So, so Patrick, does it, do, are you, <laughs> This is my term, but are you concerned that next year's census will have repercussions in the short term for rural communities? So we're very concerned about uh, the, da the danger of, of a possible real serious undercount in terms of the rural population and the makeup of that population. It has a lot to do with the allocation of resources, or it has everything to do with the allocation of federal resources with the apportionment of political power. And just to think about kind of the rural perspective of how things have changed from a political power standpoint, really from the beginning of human history in this state until 2010, we were a majority rural state. Uh, the rural population was uh, uh, the, the dominant population, that's where political power resided. Uh, today, just to give you some sense of, of how that uh, political power has shifted, as population, yes, our population has increased, but it's also moved around within the state. Mm -hmm. And we have about 43 counties, I think, rural counties, that have lost population. Mm -hmm. That's about half, in North Carolina. about half of our rural counties in North Carolina have lost some population. So if you look at a 19-county area in northeastern North Carolina, it's about 
about 25% of the land mass of North Carolina. There are 19 members of our General Assembly that represent those 19 mm -hmm. counties uh, in the state legislature. If you look at Mecklenburg County, there are 17 members of the General Assembly that represent Mecklenburg mm -hmm. County. So each 25% uh, of the land mass, 19 counties, has 10% of the political power in the General Assembly. Mecklenburg County, one county, has 10% of the political power in the General Assembly. Is, is that, it, you know, thank you, that, because that's a stark way of saying mm. it. Is it, is it that overt, the balance of power, is that, is that overt mm. in South Carolina? Absolutely. And you look at every board commission that's made up uh, through gubernatorial powers, uh, they're all based upon uh, congressional districts, and so uh, the last census, we were able to pick up another congressional seat. We added a seventh congressional seat in, in South Carolina. Again, that changes the dynamics of every board and commission that's appointed by the governor with, uh, with approval from the Senate. So just, just to be clear, that's not bad and it's not good. It just is. It, right? That's exactly right. right. We're not gonna change it. So again, I come back to the central question. So who are we now? Are we an urban state that's starting to look more like the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest or the West Coast? Oh, I think I, in many ways, North Carolina, South Carolina, they're both really coming into alignment with the national average more than we're becoming these outliers on the other side of that average, I think. So to some extent, what we're seeing is part of a global population trend. As you know, agrarian ways of life are less the main way that people provide for themselves in their communities, people are increasingly concentrated in more urban areas. And to some extent, as population grows, areas that were rural become mm -hmm. urban or they become classified as urban. So we have a weird situation in North Carolina where we actually remain the most rural large state, we have the second largest rural population of any state except for Texas, but we have the least dense urban areas and the most dense rural areas. And so... But that's it's transitional. Just, it's I transitional, but it's also, I think, reflects why some of these conversations that we're having is because we are kind of an increasingly urban, persistently rural state in mm -hmm. a lot of the ways that we function. And, and let's say, and, what, go ahead. Patrick. And to Becky's point, one thing I'd just like to say, and she made exactly a point we make all the time, our urban areas are less dense, our rural areas are more dense than a lot of other states that have such a large rural population. That actually works to the benefit of this state. It really, in what uh, way? Uh, it allows us to have a, a stronger economy mm -hmm. that reaches out into more parts of the state. So when I think about my 80 rural counties, um, 26 of them are in metropolitan service areas. So those 26 counties are really integrated into a broader metropolitan economy that where um, a lot of the economic core of this state resides. We're not highly concentrated into just a couple of mm -hmm. nodes around North mm -hmm. Carolina. We've really spread out that economic growth and that's a good thing. Uh, now, it is very true that since the Great Recession, we've seen a concentration of job creation and a lot of good things happening predominantly and to, to too great an extent, I think, around only a couple of counties, uh, Wake and Mecklenburg. Uh, and that's, uh, th that's great that that's happening, but, but we do need to continue to see this uh, spread out. Um, um, a lot of parts of our state growing um, is a good thing. And when, when you drill down to these demographics a little bit um, and I can't look at you because that's what you do and I in feel so inadequate yeah. actually yeah. sitting yeah. next to you here Rebecca. Um, Julie the, the idea that you've worked with uh, Latino um, 
Latinos in, in South America and Latinos in, in, in the United States now for a long time. How does, how does that phenomenon of the Spanish-speaking person is now much more common than ever before in the Carolinas, how does that affect who, who we are and who we're becoming? Well, you know, we're an increasingly global society. You know, we hear that. <laughs> right. And we, we have an increasingly global and connected economy as well. So we've got trade agreements, right, that are spanning multiple countries and opening up borders economically. And so with that, too, come, you know, an opening of borders for people as well. We have social media. We have, you know, apps and phones that will allow us to connect to people so much easier. And, you know, with all of these changes comes more migration and more ability to move more freely you know, and to create communities of folks from different countries in places like rural South Carolina or North mm -hmm. Carolina, you know. And so in South Carolina, for example, we had a great, we had a, a, a large number of people who were working in the migrant fields and in North Carolina as well. H2B mm -hmm. type of and visa H2A, workers. Right, yeah. exactly. H2A, yeah. And then what you found was they began to settle because they were good, a good labor force, and they were needed in those jobs, right? And as the as the communication becomes more possible between countries, they're able to call up. Their bosses are able to say, "Hey, we need a few more folks. We can't find jobs." They're able to call up or message somebody in their country and say, "Hey, come on over. We've got jobs for you." And so they, you know, it begins to increase that way. And then now, what you're seeing is that it's not so much immigration coming to the state; it's births. You know, but again, from a from a demography standpoint, that's not a bad thing. We need, you know, as as we have more and more folks retiring and the elderly population is increasing and getting increasingly older, we need births, right? And so this is a population also that's helping to fuel births in in our states. But you know, there that which is a great thing, you know, but it does affect our future yeah, workforce. Absolutely. So we need to be looking at what are the needs of Spanish speaking. Families, so most of the children being born here are speaking English from the very mm -hmm. beginning. But what are the needs of their of their families, right? Their parents to be able to support them in our school system. What are the needs of their parents that are in the workforce, right? So those are some of the things that we've got to start really, you know, looking at. So again, Carl, yeah, go ahead. Well, I totally agree with that. But how we transform and looking out the next 20 years, which is the census, back to the census mm -hmm. question, but as we look forward to the growth, the impact on the schools, the infrastructure. Uh, the, the ability to have uh, multilingual uh, folks in a, in a company, to understand the workforce right. and the culture, because culture in any industry is the most important thing. But you've got to have a culture that also represents the, the workforce. And it, they got to marry that, which is not always easy. So Carl, how do you, and I'm looking, I'm, I'm saying this about you per se, but how do you become the honest broker of the dialogue between all, uh, well, use the Latino community, uh, between the Latino and the growth of Latinos and the birth of Latinos and not and it doesn't become politically partisan like many things will because that's what we do mm -hmm. so many times and I'm looking at you because I know Mayor Benjamin has wanted Columbia to be a sanctuary city it's not but that type of and I'll call it weaponization again politically how do you make sure you stay away from it and keep it keep it an honest balanced growth as much balance as you can I mean that's a legit question I think it's it's um, have we done a great job no but if you look at representation in South Carolina uh, from 20 years ago 30 years ago uh, now we have Tim Scott an African-American state uh, US senator with Nikki Haley uh, has a product of South Carolina our culture has changed our our 
core values are have relatively stayed the same. We're still a southern state, but we actually have infused with the number of the biggest help for us. Let me say this: is we've, we're the largest per capita of um, direct uh, foreign investment, and I think since the 70s and 80s, when we started to bringing in foreign foreigners to come and work in our factories, it's really helped propel our openness to other cultures. Uh, the influx of uh, Latinos and all is, is absolutely impacting us as well. Um, I don't know if we've done a great job with that community yet. Assimilating it? Assimilating, but it's a work in progress. And I think one of the most valuable things we can do when it comes to is just to create opportunities for dialogue and understanding between communities that are diverse, that are different, uh, the native-born uh, native population as well as newcomers that are relatively new here. When I think about, you know, what, what are we becoming or what have we become, we've become a state that doesn't know each other nearly as mm -hmm. well as we used to, and, and I'm sure South Carolina yeah. feels that as well. And, you know, if you've got almost half of your population that wasn't born in the state, they're not going to have that. The family roots, the deep understanding. Uh, Bill Friday used to say we were a state of city cousins and country cousins. Yeah. And th that used to be universally true across North Carolina, not so much so anymore. Um, I imagine South Carolina feels uh, that that applies to them pretty well as, as well as in terms of how we've uh, changed. Well, so let's use that as an opportunity to say, so how does it, we've got about four minutes left. So how does that City cousins, city cousins and country cousins, I've heard Dr. Friday say that. I love that, that thing. Hi, Rebecca, how, so wh what are we becoming? Are we becoming a, a new South that has nice manners? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not trying to be flippant about that, but there is something spe special about the South around being a little bit more genteel and thoughtful and in that way. I mean, I'm a non-native, right? So I'm a Yankee transplant myself. And you seem so, nice. <laughs> but, and we but, love the fact that you, yeah. But I, I do think that it's, it's important to keep in mind, and I'm, I'm just gonna go back to the data because that's where I'm most comfortable, is that it's like, when we're talking about this new influx of the Latino population, mm -hmm. for example, the big thing on the horizon for both of the Carolinas is the second generation population. That group of individuals who were born here. Most of them are the Carolina born and bred. Why is that different? Um, because. I get asked a lot of questions where people aren't sure, they say, you know, our Latino population, but they're generally, you know, they don't speak English very well, right? And um, they're probably not documented. And that's a, a legitimate question based on a lot of the narrative we see in the, in the media, except the fact of the matter is 92% of North Carolina's Latino children were born in the United States. They speak English fluently. And if you're not planning for mm -hmm. it to bring them into jobs and to bring them into education, um, where they may need a little bit of assistance because their parents don't know that pathway as seamlessly as some of the other parents who were born here do, then I think that we're gonna miss out on a lot of talent. So I think one is realizing that like a native North Carolinian may look different than what you think. I've heard some stories of people going out to Sampson County and you know expecting a Latina woman to speak with a Spanish accent and drop in one of the most southern country. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know? <laughs> like, it still argues um, about who has the best uh, barbecue. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, we're getting people who are moving here who may not have been born here, but they're children and the grandchildren of individuals who moved out of the South during the Great Migration. So there's a lot more of ties to the South and some of the people coming here than we might see just on the surface. 
Yes. Julie, same question. This idea of so who are we becoming? Uh, you grew up in Florence County. I mean, right. geez, the PD region. It's right in the middle of South Carolina. So as you've watched it since you were a kid, what are we becoming? Are we that genteel, kind, yes, ma'am, no, sir, South? Or is there something else that's changing? Um, you know, I, th I think there's there's a little bit of both. I mean, I think we maintain that the, that value and that flavor, but I agree with what you said. I think we can continue to um, to have that if we have dialogue, right? right? I mean, the best thing for me yeah. is when I talk with somebody who is a rural farmer who I may expect to feel a certain way about Latino immigrants or, or, or farm laborers, and they've had a conversation with one of their workers and they understand their heart, they understand why they came here and they understand they share the same values that we have. The same motivation. The, the same motivation. They want the same thing for the kids. They want a better future for their kids and they're willing to do anything to make that happen. And when those dialogues happen, we can really tie, you know, really hold on to those, to those roots and that gentility. You know, you, you, and we've got 30 seconds, guys. Uh, you all sound very optimistic here and I'm not surprised by it. But Patrick, are you optimistic about this idea that we are going to have uh, dialogue? We're going to continue. Absolutely, and and I think you know it, it's our job as leaders in organizations like ours and leadership in all the senses of that word throughout the Carolinas that we really choose to focus more on the things that connect us and understanding those connections and less on the things that divide us. Mm -hmm. But it has not slowed down any company moving into North Carolina or South Carolina. Growth is still happening. The businesses are looking at the Southeast as a as a future. And you're still optimistic about dialogue being open, channels being open? I think we're, we'll have to because we all want to see the continued growth and so I think it'll definitely happen. All right, well, Carl, that's, that's the last word. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you for having Rebecca, me. Rebecca, I'm glad we could finally get you on the program after a, like seems like a dozen tries <laughs> and all of our fault, but thanks for being on the program. Julie, welcome. Thank Good you. to see you. And Patrick, thanks for making the trip. Always nice to see thank you. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for watching our program. If you'd like to watch past programs or have comments or questions, please go to, it's a long website, but it's worth it, <laughs> carolinabusinessreview.org. Until next week, I'm Chris Woody. We hope your weekend is good. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Bearings, Grant Thornton, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Promotional consideration provided by Business North Carolina Magazine. For more information, visit carolinabusinessreview.org.